if you have to spend time designing and optimizing manually for every problem you have and deploy it onto the device, that's not going to scale, right? So our researchers focus not on manually figuring out how to optimize the neural network itself. They focus on innovative ways of doing AI. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I am, of course, your host, Sam Charrington. And today I'm joined by Morali Akula, Senior Director of Software Engineering at Qualcomm. Before we get going, be sure to take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. Morali, welcome to the podcast. You began your career with more of a traditional software engineering focus. Tell us a little bit about how you found your way into machine learning. Thanks, I'm excited to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Like you said, I'm a software guy and I started working on wireless software stack. I worked in the beginning, a couple of uh, commercial products and commercial teams. Then after that, I joined the Carpet R&D group, which is a research group. And I was part of the 4G research team. So at Qualcomm, when you were talking of 4G research, we build the entire system we bring it up OTA, which is over there, and uh, test it out properly and make sure it works in real-world uh, constraints. Mm-hmm. So we have this mindset, uh, unless you build it, it's not real. So we build things that can scale into the scalable and deployable, for example, right? You start with the radio and the hardware, firmware, the software, all the layers, top to bottom. And we do this before even you go to standardize or commercialize it. So this is entirely a pre-commercial setting. We build the entire thing. So that's what I was doing for a while, part of the 4G research team. Then late 2000s, the first of the Android smartphones was coming out. My boss was Jeff Geller at that time. Nice. Uh, He came on this podcast a couple of times. So he suggested that I look into smartphone user experiences and he connected me to a team which was looking into latencies in wireless protocol and how we can improve the smartphone user experience. I started looking into the smartphone and beyond wireless, there were so many components which we built into it. And also during that time, uh, new applications were showing up and there's so much going on. And I was really amazed about so much technology we packed into this platform. And I really wanted to work on the entire smartphone (laughs) user experience. So so that's what happened. It, It was a lot of fun. We did that. And after that, I continued on machine learning projects. When we did that, it was before the deep learning took off. And over time, it's become more and more deep learning. Uh, so that's where I am, you know, doing software engineering and AI research today. Awesome. Awesome. And so tell us a little bit about your role today and the team that you work with. Sure. I have a broader organizational responsibility as a head of the carpet R&D software engineering team that is looking into forward-looking efforts across the AI spectrum. My day-to-day, where I spend most of my time, I lead a software team in a cross-discipline effort for AI research. So researchers, applied ML folks, software, hardware, testers, we all sort of work together in a cross-discipline effort. And we apply the same mentality, which we I talked about earlier in other research efforts. If you, unless you build it, it's not real. So we build out the technology that comes out of our AI research mm-hmm. and prove that 
it can be deployed onto devices. So that is broadly the role we have. And on one side, to make that happen, we are working with uh, researchers jointly. And on the other side, we are working with the commercial teams to be always ready. By doing this, uh, looking at the entire system, building it out, we are in a unique position to figure out how or when our innovations can go into our products. So we look at the entire full stack for that. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate a bit on the the full stack? I know from our past conversations, that's a, a concept and a, a terminology that's important to you and the team, but it's also something that we throw around in the industry quite a bit. It certainly means a different thing to the web developer than in the AI context. When we talk about full stack, let me start about what happens when Qualcomm is uh, looking into AI technology. We have a lot of research going on to advance fundamental AI for applications that are going to be running on Snapdragon platform, either now or in future, in different products. So all these research, when you are innovating new ways of doing AI, researchers run the experiments on servers, which uh, run in racks in a data center and call it the big compute and pretty heavy performance there. And it's all good because you can run lots of experiments and get a good results. Now the innovations which come out of that from this big compute, how do you make them run on the resource constrained devices? Okay. The software which runs on the device, the hardware architecture, the software, the tools which you use to deploy them onto the device, all that is different from what you did the software which you used when you actually ran the experiment. So that's the one which I call the full stack that is needed to deploy your AI innovations onto the devices. So we will have to look into the entire full stack. So research into the full stack is extremely important for us. We need to continuously improve every layer of this full stack and build it out and also show that it is real and it can be deployable. And this keeps us ready all the time so that any innovation we have, we can actually deploy into the real world devices. So that's what we do. We continuously look at this hardware software full stack and figure out how to deploy it onto this resource constrained mobile devices. When I hear you talk about that lifestyle, I think a little bit about I guess, Docker and where container technologies came from, you know, developers running things on their desktops and trying to get it in a prod and it not working. And they say, hey, it worked on my machine. And a lot of places, those same kind of container technologies have been adopted for machine learning, you know, workloads. But there's this whole other set of complexities when you're talking about mobile and devices not just kind of the runtime, but the constraints that you alluded to earlier in terms of power and other things. Can you elaborate a bit on, you think about devices in particular for machine learning, what are the constraints? And maybe you think we're all kind of familiar with them as users, like, hey, not a lot of memory, not a lot of compute, bandwidth issues, but there's some non-obvious things or like, how do you think about that as an engineer who works on this stuff constantly? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned how people build applications and deploy them and Docker containers. There is no Docker container on the device. (laughs) 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 But there are applications, applications which are running in real time, right? Very efficiently with the neural network efficiently mapped to the hardware. So there's many constraints on the device. It's not, first of all, all these mobile devices, they run on batteries. They're mobile, right? If you take a 
a smartphone or a VR headset or an autonomous driving car. So power efficiency is extremely important. That is, I would say, almost number one. Real-time latency is important. When you're running experiments on the server or even applications, for example, you can run it in batch mode on data. But when you are running on the device, as the signal comes from cameras, you need to be making inferences in real time. Again, you need to know that this is not the only thing which is running on the device. There's a lot of other things which are running too, and they all have to run in real time. Latency is extremely important. Area is a big concern. The the chip size, for example, the size of the block accelerator which you're using, the memory sizes, they are all important because uh, in a way, they impact power efficiency and latency. You can add more area and get the better latency, but you'll be trading off against power. Mm-hmm. So area is a big concern. The number of sensors, the resolution, the number of applications which you are running, the tasks, everything is just increasing. The size of the neural networks. And we need to pack more and more com- compute, and you can't just keep increasing the chip size. right? So area is very important. And uh, how you run it on the machine learning accelerator, uh, using the on-chip memory versus going off-chip. When you actually run the neural network, you know the you have limited on-chip memory. You can increase, but it's going to cost and area and power. You know all those things come into picture. Mm-hmm. So on-chip memory. So there's many constraints like that uh, when you run, and it becomes extremely important that how you optimize the neural network to deploy and properly map it to your hardware resources and the entire software, hardware to look at, you know, we look at all that and develop techniques on an ongoing basis, how to optimize your neural network for deployment. So this is a, neural networks are going to continue to get complex and complex, right? And we need to make them smaller and efficient and deploy them. Mm -hmm. You know, I know from prior conversations with, Folks like Jeff, who you mentioned there at Qualcomm, as well as folks on the the research side that techniques like quantization and compression and and related techniques are often a subject of research there. Are those the main types of things that you are applying when you're talking about getting these complex models working on mobile devices or are there other things? How do you think about that landscape and, and process? Yeah, I think what you mentioned, they are very important, those and a lot more. Okay. <laughs> we are looking at, when I say entire full stack, it starts from the top. We work very closely with the researchers. So our researchers, when they design the network itself, you know, they are looking at what are the parallelism in this design, which we can exploit and how do we design this so that it can run efficiently on a resource constraint device, right? It starts from there. And after that, you come up with a good design for your architecture and how do you train? How do you train so that you can deploy it onto the device? Mm. Normally, you, if you train freely, it becomes pretty complex. One example of how to train for deployment onto the device is neural architecture search. While you are designing your neural network, you could use neural architecture search to get the best optimal architecture for, the, for your design, right? So that is next. And once you have the neural network, then how do you deploy it, right? These are the couple of things which you mentioned already. We run on integer hardware, and when you train, you're training in floating point. So quantization techniques are important. And compilation, how do you optimally map the tensors to the memory? 
and how do you map the compute to the instructions of the hardware accelerator so those are important so that is the next step right how do you deploy and then how do you run on the device when you optimally compile this onto the device the application the stages the sensor data coming from the camera how does it get moved into the accelerator what are the pre processing stages then you run the neural network what are the post processing stages so that entire application architecture is is next and then the hardware architecture so all of it that's uh, what we look at when we say looking into full stack mm-hmm. so i'll also mention one other thing which is extremely important right i might have alluded to this in previous efforts which i mentioned too so it takes a continuous research effort not just to design the neural network but also to design tools and techniques which can make deploying them onto the device important so we do a continuous research into full stack with a mindset that our research in a way is running on real devices on an ongoing basis okay we sort of connect that uh, being in the middle we look at everything hardware software algorithm mic layers and all that and also the we collaborate we collaborate with uh, everybody because research is happening in universities uh, research is happening in our research teams and even in product teams a lot of innovations are happening so we sort of connect the entire uh, dot mm-hmm. can you maybe take us through an example of when you think of a complex model that's coming out of research what that looks like and and how you kind of walk this process that you identified for getting it onto a device yeah sure monocular depth estimation is a application which we recently implemented and demonstrated i can walk you through that monocular depth estimation is about creating a depth map of the scene in front of you okay so this is very important for many applications thinking like autonomous vehicles or as one example autonomous vehicles is one example even mobile phones when you are pointing at something and you need to detect features of the face and for focusing for in the camera for example yeah a lo- lot of applications like that and uh, vr headsets drones you know drones are going at high speed so you need to detect obstacles very fast mm-hmm. so in your autonomous driving example how far is the car in front of you in the scene and how far is a pedestrian or a obstacle so all those are very important and depth estimation is creating the depth map we need to infer for every pixel in the scene a depth value how far it is mm-hmm. and monocular depth estimation is about applying a neural network and inferring this depth map from a single camera image monocular depth estimation is about singular single camera image as opposed to like you've got some control environments with cameras all over the place that you can interpolate to figure out depth exactly yeah so that is the application and we implemented it on the device and uh, demonstrated you know we took it around the time for neurips mm-hmm. so what happens is when accuracy is extremely important in this use cases right mm-hmm. researchers can get the best accuracy but through those experiments you can end up creating very complex models then what end up ends up happening is it becomes so complex it becomes almost infeasible to deploy it on the device bunch of state of the art neural networks which can achieve that so what our researchers did is they 
working closely with us and also working on an ongoing basis with this on-device mentality, our researchers designed a neural network where at training time, they increase the complexity, but that doesn't translate to inference time. So because of that, you can get best accuracy at training time, but you can still run it on the device. So that's where it starts, right? As I explained. So meaning, I think part of what you're saying is it starts at research, like there are ways to do this kind of depth estimation, but the complexity of the resulting models is such that they're not feasible starting places for something that you eventually want to run on device. So you're kind of starting at the algorithm level with the thought of, hey, this eventually needs to run on the device. That is correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could just say, oh, I can just increase, add more layers, right? Or increase the complexity and get, but (laughs) we know what happens if you do that. Yeah. So our researchers have that mindset. So it's a very important innovation to be able to increase the training time complexity, but not let that go to the device. Mm -hmm. So that's what our researchers did. And after that, we have a neural network and we take the design and the full stack team next took that. Even after that, right, we, our inference per second speed was uh, 23 FPS. So that's not going to make it real time. Mm. So the next step was to make the model smaller. And our uh, full stack team used uh, neural network architecture search, NAS techniques. Mm-hmm. To reduce the size, we have NAS tools, which we use. So that is the next step. Now you make the model smaller. The next step is to deploy it on the device. To do this, you need to quantize it. Some models quantize well, some models don't quantize well. In this particular case, we have to apply the our AIMET techniques, post-training quantization techniques to make sure we don't lose the accuracy. So that is the next step. And after that, we use our compiler tools and compile it properly so that it can be mapped properly to the hardware which we have. And the next step is application design, right? We design the application properly and run it on the device, measure on-device performance. And we have an integration team which tests it properly and make sure everything is stable. The application, the architecture, the tools, any improvements which we made. And that is the entire process of uh, how you take one of the uh, use cases like monocular depth estimation all the way to the device. Okay, let's dig into all that. You mentioned the first step is the algorithm. Can you share a little bit more detail about the algorithm that was developed? Sure, yeah. It's called, again, the technology is monocular depth estimation. Mm-hmm. Our researchers came up with uh, a method called X-Distill. X-Distill? Yeah, I'll summarize it. <laughs> That's a lot of uh, information. We'll, of course, link to the full paper in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> so what they did is they, I earlier gave a hint that, you know, our researchers increase the complexity of the network while training. Mm-hmm. So the way they did it is they added semantic information that increases the complexity of the network, but that semantic information is not needed on the device. So you don't need to transfer that network down. And the training also happens in a self-supervised manner. This is a summary of what they ended up doing. To use extra information, increase the complexity of the network, but that extra information, which is semantic information, is not required to be transferred onto the device. So the method is called X-Distill X, X distill method. 
Mm-hmm. So that is the first step which our researchers were able to come up with this uh, innovation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the next step was applying neural architecture search. Even before you do that, you invest all this time and research, like coming up with a more efficient algorithm. Like, why do you need to go through the next step? Is it, you know, do you have predefined performance targets that you're trying to hit and you kind of go as far as you can with the algorithm, but you're not quite there? Or is there, uh, I'm thinking of like some kind of efficient frontier of where you get all your efficiencies from to overuse efficiency, maybe? I think that's an excellent question. So think of it this way. If you have to spend time on designing and optimizing manually for every problem you have and deploy it onto the device, that's not going to scale, right? Yeah. So our researchers focus not on manually figuring out how to optimize the neural network itself. They focus on innovative ways of doing AI. That's what this method is about. It's not about manually, let's figure out how to you know, make this model smaller. That's not what they did, right? Mm-hmm. So that is the research part of it. It only tells us that it's important even while you're doing research for on-device AI, you need to do very fundamental AI technology innovations which are required anyway, right? That is what they're doing. They're definitely not manually trying to, how do I reduce this network and make it smaller because that's not going to, right? I think that's a great distinction. So they're approaching it from the perspective of what does the architecture look like that is aware that it's aware of the end deployment environment, that it's going to have the constraints of mobile. So they're thinking about maybe turning it around. They're thinking about these constraints and using that to define an architecture that is appropriate for those constraints. But then optimization is a whole separate step that is taking starts from that architecture and then further optimizes. And I guess the, the original question is still is still valid. Like the architecture gets you, but so far and you, you have to know where to stop. But I guess for this application, or is it even like, do you go through these same set of steps no matter what the algorithm is or the, the architecture is to because you already have tools in place or are you applying them to get you to a specific place and investing a lot of, is it that the researcher is not doing the manual kind of tuning, but that's happening somewhere else? Yeah. So researchers are not supposed to be doing manual tuning. Right. They are looking at fundamental math to figure out how best to do AI for these kind of constraints. It's a pretty broad area. Mm -hmm. So they're focusing on research. Yep. So the next step, all these techniques, which I explain after that, can be manually done. Somebody can look at the uh, neural network and try to figure out how to prune the channels, reduce it. That whole process can be manually done. And some people actually design neural networks also by number of layers or doing depth-wise separable convolution was one of the earlier innovations to run neural networks on mobile devices. So you could do that too, but none of that is going to scale. You don't have armies of people who are looking at every layer and trying to optimize how it can run on the mobile device. So the neural network architecture search is a method, automatic method, which can, given a bigger design, figure out how to make it smaller. So that is the next step. So we have research going on into neural network architecture search also. 
fundamentally how can you come up with technique you know that's research part you take that and create a tool and we use the tool to automatically do it if you don't automate it it's not going to be scalable so it's important to create these tools mm-hmm. so that is the next step after that to apply a nas tool to make the model smaller mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit more about the nas tool in particular sure so this one is called dana the technique that we use distilling optimal neural network architectures there's a paper which we published and there's a webinar also for more details but if i summarize it at a high level you have a mother network which is a bigger network you would have trained without any constraints you can increase the complexity of the network and get the accuracy you want then dana is a knowledge distillation based uh, methodology and it's a technique it uses knowledge distillation to search through the combinations of uh, layers and channels and all that but also searches uh, using an evolutionary algorithm for best architecture directly on the device by running sample architectures on the device so that is the summary i can give but the important thing about developing this kind of technique is also it's very scalable so if you you can, you can create neural network architecture search techniques which can take a lot of compute it's not going to scale so we want a scalable technique where in commercial settings with limited compute budgets the product teams should be able to use the tool so that's the speciality about uh, dana it addresses very diverse search spaces it also uses innovative techniques where you don't need lot of compute budget by reusing some of the stages and results of knowledge distillation in final training of the selected architectures you mentioned that it is as part of this distillation process it's measuring some set of things on the device like what specifically is it is it measuring and kind of continuing this theme of like every part of the stack has to be device aware like this is another example of that where we have network architecture search approaches that do great jobs that come from other areas of research but this is one where it's been customized to do a great job but in the context of mobile that is correct so i mean this is where our full stack software engineering also comes into picture so the what you do when you apply dana technique so you run this tool which we developed incorporating that technique and we have uh, frameworks to connect to the device and take a sample network which dana finds and run it on the device and take a measurement back the measurement which of interest on the device is latency how fast it's going to execute so it is searching through the entire search space and trying to figure out what is the best architecture which can run in acceptable latency so that's what it is doing now coming back to the full stack software engineering getting a technique like this with uh, hardware in the loop can be extremely tricky if it is not done right for user it will be very difficult and very time consuming and it's going to defeat the purpose so the software engineering team looked at the dana technique how we can make both knowledge distillation running on gpus and searching for architectures directly running on the devices put the entire framework together in a user friendly manner 
applying a proper software architecture and software discipline and also make it uh, scalable and user friendly so that we can use it ourselves first and make sure it runs and eventually we can give it to the uh, customers mm-hmm. and a project like this are you what's the overall metric or set of metrics that's driving you and again kind of the question that I was asking earlier like how do you know when you're done after each of these steps or if you're done after each of these steps or when you're done ultimately not every neural network model will require all the techniques mm-hmm. or even any of the techniques mm-hmm. it really depends on the application really depending on the complexity of the network first thing to do is just try it out and you see but we do have tools to measure offline what is the latency you're going to get right so if you're going to get the latency which you need or the computational cost you don't need to go through a bunch of steps right you still need the efficient hardware and so- software architecture on the device which runs it but you don't need to do go through nas tools or uh, for example quantization tools you still take it through the compiler but you don't need to do anything special but some networks you will know that these are big these are going to be complex i still need to run them because that's the only way to get accuracy and that's when you need this tool mm-hmm. and so in this case the next step was to apply quantization with through the amet tool that is correct yeah so after you apply nas technique on monocular depth estimation uh, application we were able to take it from uh, 23 fps to 35 fps mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's great so we were able to make the network smaller and get uh, better fps and make it real time then you need to see do we have the accuracy i need because when you train you have a floating point model but on the device we have integer hardware so you need to run it in lower precision so in this particular case we did need to run the amet tool and apply our post training quantization techniques then we were able to get the accuracy which was equivalent to the floating point accuracy got it and in thinking about the quantization how automated is that step is that kind of a off the shelf tool you grab amet you kind of point it at your model and you're done or is there a lot of tuning that has to go into taking full advantage of it so that also depends on the model <laughs> most models are quantizable outright mm-hmm. the, by using what we call post training quantization techniques okay post training quantization techniques take the model and apply the algorithms in amet and make them quantization friendly mm-hmm. by modifying weights for example or uh, quantizing it better but sometimes you will run into models where you still don't get the accuracy you need and you will have to go into something called quantization aware training okay so emet supports that too so it really depends on the kind of network you have but our goal is to continue to increase you know improve emet doing research into all these algorithmic techniques and adding them to emet both post training quantization and quantization aware training and also to make it more and more user friendly and more automated so that that's what we'll be looking at Uh, in this particular monocular depth estimation uh, scenario we were able to apply uh, post training techniques and we were able to get very quickly we were able to recover the accuracy but in some situations it's not you apply different techniques it's a bag of techniques if you think of it there's a lot of techniques in aimet 
for example we have also uh, demonstrated this uh, neural video codec at our snapdragon tech summit in december for that we ended up having to apply per channel quantization which is a different technique than what we applied for monocular depth estimation and also uh, for neural video codec we had to do like i said earlier we had to actually look at the design and optimal architecture modifications into a neural network design also so it depends on the models and what you have to do but our goal is to automate the entire stack as much as possible mhm mhm you mentioned the neural video codec can you talk a little bit more about that example and what you're trying to do there yeah so neural video codec is about video compression use case and as you know video compression needs are growing rapidly if you think of the past couple of years uh, while streaming video is a big yeah use case but video conferencing like this <laughs> and video calls uh, those are important i was just going to jump in and say i've had some conversations with some of your colleagues on the research side about the work that is going on there to apply machine learning to video compression as opposed to kind of traditional codec architectures are the resulting models kind of as complex as the the kind of thing we've talked about for the monocular depth estimation and do they require similar types of steps yes and no our researchers have been working on this designing networks for a while they came up with this end to end neural network architecture for video compression let me explain how it works mm-hmm. the neural video codec there are two parts to it one part is you apply a neural network and get the latents it's a encoder so you run the encoder part you take the video you run the encoder you get the latents mm-hmm. and then after that you take the latents and you do something called entropy encoding and after that you send it to the receiving device and the receiving device the does the opposite entropy decoding followed by neural network decoding so we looked at the architecture which they came up with and with the existing tools and software we were able to take the neural network uh, part of the design and map it to our ml accelerator without having to do lot of new techniques obviously i mentioned applying per channel quantization but we already have that in our aimed toolkit okay so we were able to we didn't have to get into you know they were able to design the end to end system in a way where it can actually run on the device they are looking at the complexity of the network while they are designing it but then when we are working jointly with them you know being in the same team software engineers working with the researchers we looked at the end to end architecture and we found that this entropy encoding and entropy decoding could be a bottleneck the reason is we can exploit the parallelism in the neural network and map it to our accelerator but when you do entropy decoding to decode a symbol you need the previous symbol that means you need to decode the previous symbol it sort of serializes the entire thing so you have this wonderful neural network part which can be parallelized but the resulting latents you end up serializing it so we uh, discussed with the researchers and then they looked at the latents and the mathematical properties of it and figured out how can we parallelize it and they figured out that latents are actually either independent or conditionally independent and they were able to like figure out how to design a parallel entropy encoder and parallel entropy decoder so once they did that we took that and implemented it on the cpu 
Snapdragon platform is a heterogeneous platform. We have the accelerator, we have the CPU, we have the GPU, we have DSPs. So we were able to implement the parallel entropy decoder on the CPU and match the parallelism uh, which is happening on the accelerator. And then we are able to get it to real time. Got it. Got it. A lot of our conversation thus far has been focused on trying to achieve like inference latency targets and, and other inference oriented objectives on devices. Is there anything that you're aware of looking at more of the like training on devices? Is that is that a thing yet? It is a thing. So over the past number of years, the full stack on the device was more about running inference workloads. Mm-hmm. while training was mostly centralized and uh, on the servers. So the full stack accounts for optimizing the inference, the forward pass on the device. But lately, past couple of years uh, or even a little more, we're seeing more and more training on the device mm-hmm. using the local data. Mm-hmm. Uh, primarily for personalization reasons, you have some data which is very unique to you. You can personalize the model for yourself. Mm-hmm. So those kind of use cases have already been deployed and they're showing up. So training is becoming an important part of the full stack and we are looking at it. So we at NeurIPS uh, 21, we actually implemented a federated learning system for distributed training completely on the devices. Nothing is happening on the server except for getting the incremental updates from various devices and combining them. Okay. So we implemented an end-to-end federated learning training system. So that is also part of our uh, full-stack effort. It, it requires a lot of software engineering. It's a distributed system. Mm-hmm. So you need to make sure the entire architecture works well, and it works for both PyTorch and TensorFlow users. Mm-hmm. We created libraries on the device. We created connections to a coordinator running in the cloud so that everything scales up to thousands of devices. And is the idea that like Amit and Donna and some of these other tools that it kind of just goes into the bag of tricks and the next time you need to build a a model that could benefit from distributed training, you can apply this? Or do you think for in the near future, it will require that manual kind of handcrafting that we've talked a little bit about? Yeah, so the goal is to avoid anything manual, which is not going to scale. So we continue to build these tools they are going to become automatic more and more. And the federated learning framework, we package it certain way that uh, our teams who want to do federated learning can just take it, you know, run the experiment, but also be able to deploy without having to do a lot of work themselves. Mm -hmm. Awesome, awesome. So thinking back to the examples that we've talked about, the monocular depth estimation, the neural video codec, we've talked about kind of process of getting from research to real world, kind of touch it, see it on a device. Does that mean that they're products and that they're productized? Or is that a further step that you take these products or these projects? There is a further step. So we are still part of the research team. Mm -hmm. Whatever we create is deployable. So, but our focus is on creating a solid research pipeline. A research pipeline of uh, fundamental AI improvements mm-hmm. and also how they can be optimally deployed onto the device. Mm-hmm. So across the full stack. So we innovate, implement, and create this research pipeline. 
But while doing that, the product teams also have innovative advances in the architecture, both hardware and software. And we work very closely with the product teams. And by doing a full stack approach in the research team, we are always ready. Uh, When the need arises, the product teams can immediately uh, decide to take some of the innovations. You know, some go very early, some go a little late. But immediately, as uh, very soon, you know, take it and put it into the commercial roadmap, product roadmap. Then after that, it's about scaling, scaling across Qualcomm business. That's a pretty big effort. Mm-hmm. So we focus on the research side, building a solid research pipeline, and our product teams are focusing on the product roadmap. We work very closely and collaboratively. Mm-hmm. And the form that these products end up taking, like, does that say monocular depth estimation, would that be built into silicon or would that be software that's part of a toolkit or kind of all of the above, depending on what makes the most sense? Monocular depth estimation is one example. We have a lot of AI technology in our platform, in Snapdragon platform. We have the entire camera, (laughs) everything which is needed to do camera, everything which is needed to do video processing. So the answer is all of the above. All these innovations like applications, our product teams will take integrated into the products. Same thing with the full stack innovations. Our uh, software team, product software team takes it and you know puts it into the roadmap. Mm-hmm. But we also make sure that uh, we figure out the best way we can put it out into the community, into the world. Like for example, a model efficiency toolkit. We felt uh, it's important that that's an open source project. So anybody can use it to quantize, to run an integer hardware. We also have a model zoo project. Some of the applications will just put it out in the model zoo. And with some of them, we just directly give it to the customer so they can integrate. So it's sort of all of the above. Okay. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, Morali, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about how you see kind of this full stack ecosystem and getting some of the research ideas into product. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. This was really great. Thanks. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.